Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 306 Enlightenment Engineering. We're joined this week by technologist Mikey Siegel to explore his work in the emerging field of enlightenment engineering and his explorations in consciousness hacking. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, everybody. Ben Sorn here with Mike Redmer and our special guest, Mikey Siegel. We're here today um, kind of exploring this theme of contemplative technology. And uh, Mikey is someone that um, I think, Mikey, I, I ran across your work originally um, when I saw you and Rohan Dixit working on the BrainBot project. And then since then, uh, I know you've worked with a, a friend and teacher of mine as well, Kenneth Folk. So uh, we've got a kind of shared background in the yeah. kind of uh, noting meditation and geeky Theravada Buddhist world. Um, and we were just talking before the show, Mike, Mike Redmer's got a background in, with Shenzhen. So we've all kind of got this interesting geeky uh, Burmese noting meditation background. So hopefully it won't get too nerdy in that respect when we start talking, <laughs> but you never know. Um, and yeah, we're just here to talk about some of the, you know, some of the work that Mikey's doing, which um, uh, connects really deeply with the work that we're doing here with Buddhist Geeks. And um, we're going to explore enlightenment engineering and consciousness hacking uh, and talk a bit about what, what those terms mean and, and where maybe this stuff is going. Um, so yeah, why don't we kick it off there? Uh, consciousness hacking and enlightenment engineering. What's going on there? For sure. I see those as, uh, well, thank you both of you for having me. This is, this is fun to talk to you guys. Um, I see those as two related but different threads. Um, and they're both about this, um, I guess, meta approach to developing tools and technology for self-exploration. I, I've kind of been, uh, the last few years, been sort of transitioned from a background in robotics and kind of dove headfirst into this space, which there isn't a lot of definition for. It's kind of new. You put a great title on a contemplative technology. I think that's a good term to put, to put with it, but you can call it a lot of different things. But it's really about exploring, expanding the boundaries for the tools that we can use for exploring our own consciousness, for pursuing contemplative practice. And so the last year or so, or year and a half maybe, I've been like head down in sort of prototype mode, building, tinkering, soldering iron, oscilloscope, totally geeking out, thinking about how I could actually build stuff, um, mainly for myself. But I, I can see clearly, especially when I talk about it, about it with people, that there's a much wider interest. And it strikes me that what I can do as an individual is very, very limited. Um, and what I would love, in addition to my own prototyping and work that I'm excited about and continually doing, hopefully leading towards commercial products potentially, is making these ideas and tools and ways of thinking more widely accessible. One way of doing that is through an academic approach. And one way of doing that is through more of like the maker, DIY, hacker community. Um, and so 
the Enlightenment engineering thing um, is a, I'm kind of like in a, a, a round of uh, applying to grad school. And this is a proposal for a PhD program, which would be sort of creating, as is defined in the PhD proposal, this field of Enlightenment engineering, which is based on this already existing, rich and somewhat mature, still maturing, but but really, really powerful body of um, scientific exploration into meditation and contemplative practice. So we have this sort of science, this this framework for understanding how does this work in the brain? How does this work in the body? How can this address clinical conditions? But we haven't really started to explore, well, how can we use that information in an applied way? Right. Now, we have done that using what we could call traditional technologies. Um, and a traditional technology is like, you know, language or, or defined meditation techniques or even a lot of like, like MBSR adaptations of traditional, uh, traditional methodologies um, to sort of meet modern constraints and modern society. Um, but we haven't really gone far past that. Um, some people like Judson Brewer are pushing that, that boundary, but there's a huge expansive space outside of that. So partly it's me wanting to explore that myself. And partly this enlightenment engineering thing is saying, Hey, we need to set an academic framework and precedent up in order to make it easy and acceptable for people to pursue these things because right now it's taboo. Um, and then the consciousness hacking thing is a similar concept, but much more in the DIY space. There's this huge um, availability now of resources that are totally accessible to you and me, anyone that has an inkling. Like for example, there's like five or six commercially available consumer EEG headsets. Yep. And I don't even know what, I spend my life like watching this stuff and I don't even know what people are doing with them. It's like not even, it's not even clear. Um, but there's a huge interesting space, for example, that people could be using those, a whole wide array of biosensing technology and just like opening people up to this idea that, hey, there's all these, there's all this technology, all these tools out there. You can actually begin developing stuff on your own for exploring your own consciousness for um, creating new tools for self-awareness. Nice. It almost sounds like yeah. like the homebrew uh, computer club for for the mind or something. Exactly. Well, exactly. it's it's so funny because it, um, you had mentioned the EEG headsets, you know, and I'm thinking of uh, NeuroSky in yep. particular, and they had that that one headset that attaches to a headband with you know those ears that perk up or go down, and I'm like really like you can you can read your brain waves and yes. this is what you're making i i think even even these companies are like i don't even really know how to how to best use it and really they're relying on the development community to bring you know from all of these different avenues whether it's gaming or um you know more uh you know more performance oriented uh like biohackers kind of approach um and the contemplative approach i think has a lot of uh, things to bring to bear uh, on those kind of technologies. My, my, my sense, and this is, you know, my, my personal kind of frame on the world is that all these, there is a wave of technology that's being developed from this, uh, these consumer EEG headsets to a whole array of 
um, self-tracking and wearable technologies. And I look at the applications and they're interesting. And sometimes they're sort of grasping at what seems like useful stuff. But my, my personal sense is without knowing it, they're all driving towards the same thing, which is this underlying um, desire for increased self-awareness. Um, or as one way to put it, I think there's a lot of, right. a lot of ways of putting it, but they're all yeah. sort of getting at this idea of tracking some aspect of who or what is happening and then feeding it back to us in some way and these ever tightening loops of self-awareness. And, and so I, I think that this whole application towards contemplative stuff is, is like definitely one of the most interesting, interesting things. And, and with the, with the EEG stuff, um, I think there's an uh, interesting criteria you can use for sort of gauging how useful these things are because there's a bunch of these sort of kind of cool seeming applications of these consumer EEG headsets is if you were to plug in ra completely random data, would the thing still be as interesting? And right. with most of these things, it's true. You could just plug in random data and it would still be, it would still be interesting. Um, yeah. So what do you mean by random data? Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, like, the way that people have used these EEG headsets, it's more the novelty, the concept that, oh, I'm using brainwave data, data to control, like, ears moving. Or there was another really cool project where uh, a girl created these um, sort of little um, mini pools of water around her. And she would sit sort of in this meditative pose, and the water would vibrate based, based on the different bands of her EEG. And yeah. I love the concept, and it was a beautiful presentation, but you could stream random EEG data through her project, right. and she could still be sitting there, and it would still look just as cool and still have the same effect. So it almost didn't matter what the content of the EEG data was. So it, it was more of a superficial use yeah. of EEG, like a token use of it, rather than a real deep and meaningful use, compared to, for example, what, what my buddy Rohan is doing with BrainBot, where he's trying to actually meaningfully use the EEG data. Yeah, it almost seems like it's more in the realm of performance art that shows maybe a glimpse of what's possible in the future, but doesn't really do it in any concrete way. Exactly. Well, and um, an another application that I saw that I thought was pretty interesting is um, they, they strapped an, an iPhone to the, the head, and yeah. when uh, they use some kind of like eye I glass thing and, and when mm -hmm. the when the person was looking at something that uh interested them to a certain level they had some kind of a baseline and, and once that you know threshold was was maxed then they considered you know she is interested in what she's seeing and so and then they would take a, a photo or, or a video so that she could track throughout her day what what she's seeing what she's interested in or what really grabbed her attention and uh you know, I, that, that kind of stuff is interesting, but it's, um, it's almost like there, there needs to be a, a, a depth of, uh, this is at least from the contemplative angle, I think there's such a, um, a rich tapestry that contemplatives can bring, and especially contemplatives that are, uh, that are familiar with technology and that, you know, swim in it all the time and can think of and invent and create new ways of uh, creating tech, uh, use it, utilizing the technology to 
uh, create, you know, meaningful experiences and deeper experiences. And I think this is what you're speaking to, to the, the DIY community. And um, I'd love to hear more about that in terms of uh, what, what you have going on and your, your group and peers. Um, where do you see this DIY movement going and what are some like, interesting things going on there? Awesome. Yeah. Um, so the, the project you mentioned, the NeuroCam, um, is a great jumping off point um, because it, like so many projects, um, rely heavily on a very conceptual or mind-oriented um, process where you are tracking or recording some kind of information. And then much later on, you know, whatever it is, an hour, a day, a week later, you then look at some charts or graphs or some way of that information being represented. And then you learn something new, like new facts about yourself or something. And then that results in some kind of behavior change or new insight into yourself. And that's useful. And that's a classical approach to learning and, and all that stuff. Um, but if you think about meditation, meditation ideally doesn't function in that way. Ideally, you're completely trying to bypass the mind, the whole conceptual system. You're not trying to get new facts, right? Sort of observe things in a way where you could write, write new stuff down necessarily. It's more experiential. And so my interest is really in how can we create new types of technologies that are specifically designed to bypass the whole obsessive mental tendency to conceptualize and think about stuff and ground us in a direct, non-judgmental, present moment experience. Um, so technology for now, for this moment. And I think that there is a, a really wide array of ways you can approach this. Um, I've been lately, for example, interested in wearable um, technologies. Um, I'm interested in, in concepts like full-time, real-time feedback. Um, where it's not session-based. The idea is about incorporating the technology into your everyday life. So um, a project I'm working on right now with a friend of mine, Bo, um, is a uh, wearable EEG headband that connects to an iPhone app. And um, you would wear headphones. And you can wear this while you're working, uh, while you're driving, uh, while you're walking down the street. Um, it's, and it creates a, um, a soundtrack to your, to your mental activity, um, which at first sounds more just like, okay, that's interesting and novel. That could be kind of cool to listen to and work to, but it actually has an interesting utility to it. Um, because if this soundtrack directly maps to your mental states in a repeatable way, you can actually begin to learn the certain sounds that correspond to different mental states. Oh, what does mind wandering sound like? What does focused attention sound like? What does um, these different sort of subtle states of meditation sound like? Um, and not only does that provide you with sort of insight into your inner process, it's sort of an alternate lens, um, but by the premise of neurofeedback and biofeedback, which is pretty well established, um, if you have this feedback and you know the state you're driving towards, in this case, you know the sound 
that you want this to, to, to be because that corresponds to your desired state, you can then drive the system and continually reinforce your, your, your desired states or focused aware state using the soundtrack as a leverage point or as an anchor. Um, mm, that's interesting. That's, that's super cool. What, what have you found um, using these EEG headsets in terms of, um, you know, I, I know when I was looking into it at one point, I was um, looking into NeuroSky and, and looking at their develop, the developer SDK. And, um, you know, there's certain algorithms that they provide in terms of uh, uh, filtering out uh, all of the, the noise and kind of focusing on certain patterns and, and using that in terms of like uh, an attentive state and a relaxed state. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of the, the, the two extremes that they use, you know, in games and that kind of thing as control mechanisms and, and that kind of thing. Um, but I was curious what your thoughts were on uh, those algorithms and uh, how, how are you guys using it in that particular product in terms of is it, uh, is it two particular states or are you just uh, reflecting back whatever's happening and it's up to the person to kind of uh, make that correlation between this is what a, this subjective state feels like, this is what it sounds like, um, and just it's got a lot of variance. So you can roughly separate feedback into what I, what I would call biased and unbiased feedback. Um, I don't know if there's like probably more official terms for that, but I made those up. Um, oh, yeah, that feedback, makes sense. That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, biased feedback is traditional. That's what you'd almost always see. And that's where there's a desired state. And then for, for people that are unfamiliar with the concept of, of biofeedback or neurofeedback, I'll just explain it really quick. Um, you... Um, are trying to um, use what's called feedback to try to reinforce some particular state. So classically, let's say I'm trying to change the temperature of my finger, okay? I would have a temperature sensor on my finger, and then I would have a little gauge that would show me the temperature of my finger. And by seeing this gauge and then processing it through my eyes and into my brain, I can actually use that as a leverage point to actively and consciously change what, you know, 60 years ago was thought to be a completely autonomic or uncontrollable kind of uh, function. And so we can use that same premise now in really advanced ways. For example, we can use real-time fMRI, which can image little interior regions of our brain, um, and then some feedback on a screen showing us how activated or deactivated that region of the brain is. And we can actually change the way that that little inside region of the brain functions um, in this way. And it's really powerful. So that's that's, that's like I what just, Judd's doing, right, with his uh, with his work. Exactly what Judd is doing. And there's actually um, not to not to diverge too much, but like there was a lot of interest and exploration in the neurofeedback, biofeedback space in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, and for various reasons, I've heard interesting stories explaining why along with psychedelics research, um, all of that stuff, um, the funding got pulled and it all sort of became eventually very taboo in academia. Um, a lot of it got, um, mushed together with sort of pseudoscience-y kind of new age sort of thinking, which the new age part is, is not necessarily bad, but it does not mix. It's like oil and water with academia. Um, so sure. it got all mushed together. And so you just threw the baby out with the bathwater 
and and the whole thing got pushed out. And so now there's a new renaissance happening in the world of biofeedback, or in the world of neurofeedback, using these really advanced technologies like fMRI and MEG and dense EEG array, spatial imaging, um, all this kind of cool stuff. And that that's what Judd's doing. Um, but back to the biased, <laughs> the biased and unbiased feedback. Um, so biased feedback, also what Judd is doing, you have an idea of what you want to change. For example, you want to deactivate the PCC in the brain or something. And so you create a feedback system to drive towards that particular goal. Unbiased right. feedback is sort of like watching your breath. I mean, you could say reality is a form of unbiased feedback maybe, um, but when you watch your breath, um, it's almost like the act of watching itself is the point. It is through becoming aware that the harmonization or the balance happens. And so, um, and it's, it's almost like through this non-judgmental awareness without having a desired state in mind, without having a directive or a goal that you can um, get into, um, let's just say, a more, a more, more interesting avenue or more equanimous kind of, kind of space. Um, and so if you can create an unbiased feedback that isn't saying, hey, this is the right way and this is the wrong way, then you can cut out a lot of the judgment factor, the self-criticism, um, the sort of anxiety and nervousness that can go along with trying to improve, trying to be better, I'm not doing good enough or something like that. And so um, with this EEG project, I'm specifically trying to explore an unbiased feedback where you create as rich a mapping as possible between the sound and the mind states um, where all relevant mind states are there mapped uniquely to this whole wide space of sound. It could take you a month of wearing it to become familiar with this sound space. You know, it may not be an immediate thing. Um, but, but, and the sound space doesn't say, Oh, this sounds better. And this sounds worse. It all just sort of has this, this sort of sound spectrum to it. Um, and then um, you in your own natural movement towards balance um would would gravitate towards particular sounds or something like that um, interesting and and do 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 individuals have unique uh signatures or is it with the the fidelity of the eeg right now is it just a spectrum that if you do it long enough eventually you'll you'll experience all of those mind states as sounds um, or are individuals different? Are they are they getting different kind of sound feedback? So this this is this is still in the I would say experimental early phases, mm -hmm. and I, I don't think I have enough data to to give you a good answer to that. Um, but um, I think there I think you were originally asking about like this NeuroSky headset and sort of the the potential for these consumer EEG headsets. I think the it's still an open question um, because the question is um, do the technologies that we're using um, have the ability to capture the relevant, the correlates of the relevant mind states right. that we're after or the relevant subjective states that we're after. Like how good and, is the resolution on that? How, 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 how well does it correlate? 
Exactly. Exactly. And if, 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 um, if, uh, like a single electrode from a relatively crappy, um, EEG, um, doesn't capture sort of in a, in a unique way, um, the, I guess what you could call a neural fingerprint of that desired state where you could have a neural correlate of the desired state, but lots of other things could correlate if you have this really broad window. Um, mm -hmm. But what you really want is a, is a neural fingerprint where you have a sort of a, a much more unique correlation to that, to that particular, in this case, like, you know, um, into, to that desired state, which would be this unique configuration of brainwaves. Um, and so if you can get that, then you can be more confident that you're, that you're sort of guiding people in the right way. And, and the jury's still out. Um, and the, the neurosky is like just the bottom of the barrel in a sense. It's a single electrode. There's a few new devices coming out, like Interaxon is coming out with the device. Um, Emotive is coming out with a new device. There's a Kickstarter out right now for a project called OpenBCI, um, which is an eight-channel EEG, more clinical grade. So there, you have a gradient now emerging of accessible EEGs that potentially have more resolution and access to more data. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, I was curious to, to sort of sw switch gears a little bit to a different yeah. kind of project that, that I, um, I saw you talking about, um, which was something you did at Burning Man. Oh. And uh, it seemed like you were using not EEG, but some other kind of measure. Was it the, uh, the heart, uh, like kind of heart sink kind of measurement? Um, yeah. and, and now the reason I want to ask about this is because uh, it's interesting to think about using some of these technologies individually, right? But it's also very fascinating to think about using them in a collective or social context. You know, how do our minds change when we're meditating together, for instance? You know, Kenneth Volk, who, you know, uh, we all know really well, you know, one of the things he did was take a technique that had often been done or only been done individually and sort of say, hey, what if we did this socially? What if we, instead of noting our experience moment by moment in our own minds, we actually noted in a social situation? And those kind of things are really fascinating. I'm curious uh, to talk about the potential of these technologies in terms of social exploration. Um, and I know you did something at Burning Man, which is itself one giant social experiment. <laughs> um, I've heard it called like kind of a religion of, of our generation. Um, but I'm curious, yeah, what, what that was about and what, what you kind of what your thoughts are on the on the social dimension of this. Cool. I, I am very interested in um, the in, in technology's ability to in a real-time, present-moment sense, um, lower the perceived boundary between me and you, self and other. Um, and um, the HeartSync project was an effort in that direction. Um, actually, I, I, I've been thinking about this stuff for a while. I was really inspired by um, the book Nexus. Um, they oh, have yeah. A, oh, yeah. some really great scenes in there uh, in the book where you know, you have a room full of monks that have sort of, you know, have this um, basically operating system running in their brain that allows this sort of universal mental connectedness, all meditating in a room, just a great image, really inspiring. I encourage people to read it to, to in a sci-fi sense, get inspired about these technology facilitated um, group connectedness kind of concepts. And um, so the Burning Man thing, this HeartSync project, um, I was exploring um, this idea of, I guess, it's what 
um, HeartMath calls coherent. Um, and it's a, simply put, it's just a balanced physiological state where your heart rate is mapped to your your breath in a natural way. And that when you inhale your heart rate, if you're in a calm, balanced state, your heart rate will naturally increase when you inhale. Your heart rate will naturally go down with you when you exhale. And a bunch of other things physiologically will change in this rhythm with your breath. And if you were to look at someone, for example, who's um, who is meditating and breathing in a calm and regular way, you'll find this naturally happening. So this was sort of a, a physiological correlate, an anchor um, that I could sort of drive people toward, well, that I could drive an individual towards, which is what's commonly happened. And my my question that I was kind of putting out with this thing was, well, what if you were to drive an entire group towards a completely synchronized state of heart rate variability where the whole group was both breathing together and all of their heart rates were increasing and decreasing in rhythm with each other. And so I created this system called HeartSync. It was actually originally funded by um, the Tech Museum in San Jose and could will potentially or likely be incorporated into a permanent exhibit there. But this was uh, the Burning Man project was a fun place to explore it. Um, and uh, the setup is this audio visual experience. You have a big sort of projection screen, sort of big speakers around you and you sit down, I can do up to six people at a time and you're all watching the screen, hearing the sounds and the visuals and the sound are a constant reflection of the both each individual's state of internal balance, physiological balance, and the group's uh, overall state of balance together. And so um, by watching this, and, and I kind of instruct people sort of what the, what the visual cues are, but by watching this, visually, you can see the group coming into and out of this state of balance. And it's not an automatic thing. You really need to sit down and like a meditation, you really need to sit with it. You really need to get synced up. And it, you know, sometimes takes five or 10 minutes for a group to, you know, initially reach this state of synchronization. But um, it, it, it definitely works uh, in the sense that people do reach this, this physical state of balance. Um, I don't, I'm not going to claim that I've, I've uh, created the sort of group enlightenment machine or something like that. <laughs> I, wish, I wish that was true. Um, but um, from the Burning Man experience and a number of other experiences, what I, first of all, it was, it was a, it was a really great success. And, and although people did have interesting, profound experiences, I'm not convinced that I like, I probably could have shown them a video of like a unicorn jumping and they probably would have had a profound <laughs> experience too. <laughs> there, there are all sorts of uh, extenuating circumstances yeah. at Burning Man. We'll call them variables. <laughs> um, but the, but the thing that, um, I came out of it with, which was really profound, was realizing how hungry people are for a new relationship with technology. The technology that's increasingly surrounds us is really acting in direct opposition to the aims of contemplative practice. It's externalizing our intention. It's increasing the amount of content, increasing the amount of mental activity and noise, and decreasing our present moment and, and uh, general ability 
to just focus on the phenomena in this moment as it arises um, without judgment, without criticism, without continual wandering off into a men- into an alternate mental dimension. And so people were, they were just refreshed. They were, they were inspired, not even specifically by this project, but by the idea of, wow, I, this can be technology. This can be a future for technology. And it's, it's that kind of inspiration that I would love to um, spread that I would love to be able to show people, Hey, you can also change, develop new technology that changes our relationship with these devices. Um, I think that there's a lot of, I was just listening to, um, he's like the technology theorist, Rushkoff. Oh, Douglas. Douglas Rush. Yeah. Um, and there's another, like Sherry Turkle also is another one. They have, they have these great, um, critiques of our relationship with technology. And I think they're all very valid. And the question is, well, what, what do you do with that? And I think that there's an, there are approaches that act in opposition to that, which I think is totally valid and natural. And those try to um, say things like, okay, you need to take an hour a day, just unplug, you know, unplugging Um, is the big, the big thing, right? Exactly. And, and I think that's great. If you can get people to unplug, that's marvelous. um, If that's helpful, but that requires behavior change, behavior modification, which is hard to do. Um, And you're sort of going against the grain in a sense. And, um, I think that to, in addition, say, well, how can we go with the grain? What yes. can we do to leverage this already existing propensity for people to look to technology to solve their problems, which you could say is a negative trait. And you can say, well, how can we sort of take that and use it as like a trick, you yes. know, um, to, 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 to then um, um, ride that wave and develop technology based on that that just redirects attention back to the self, redirects attention back to the present moment. Um, so that's kind of what HeartSync is trying to do, and I guess that's what I'm trying to do with most, most of the stuff I'm doing. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting buddhistgeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community 
and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.